Hello all, and welcome back to Tangents on Cracked Spines. We now have episode 6 of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I do record this at home, so apologize the sounds of fans, cars, cats, and or my mother. Just a reminder that Frankenstein, while uh, written in the 1800s, I believe, does have some sensitive topics uh, and may not be appropriate for all audiences. Please proceed with caution. So last time we read chapters seven and eight and a quick synopsis is that Josephine I believe her name was uh, was sentenced uh, to death for murdering William even though everyone close to uh, close to her knows that this isn't the case Victor more than anybody else because he's Positive, it is the quote-unquote wretch that he created. Um, once she is hung, I believe she was hung. Um, everybody grieves, both for uh, six-year-old William and for uh, Josephine's death, and. Victor just continues to spiral into a uh, depth of grieving and self-loathing because he's like, I'm the murderer. I'm the one who created the instrument that murdered this person. Uh, my, my, you know, two lives, my brother and his caretaker. Uh, the father is like, you know what? I think we need a change of scenery. So they go up into the Alps into like their lake villa or whatever. And instead of sleeping every night, he just rows out into the middle of the lake, uh, regardless of the weather and continues to spiral, um, due to his guilt. And now we resume. Chapter 9 The next day, contrary to the prognostications of our guides, was fine, although clouded. We visited the source of the Arverion and rode about the valley until evening. These sublime and magnificent scenes afforded me the greatest consolation that I was capable of receiving. They elevated me from all littleness of feeling, and although they did not remove my grief, they subdued and tranquilized it. Also, side fact, uh, I believe I've heard that Geneva is actually like a French-speaking part of uh, Switzerland. So I was trying to give them like a more dramatic type accent, and apparently I should be giving them a more French accent. I'm too far into the book to change that. Also, I am terrible at French accents. In some degree, also, they diverted my mind from the thoughts over which it had brooded for the last month. 
I returned in the evening fatigued, but less unhappy, and conversed with my family with more cheerfulness than had been my custom for some time. My father was pleased, and Elizabeth overjoyed. My dear cousin, said she, you see what happiness you diffuse when you are happy? Do not relapse again. The following morning the rain poured down in torrents, and thick mists hid the summits of the mountains. I rose early, but I felt unusually melancholy. The rain depressed me. My old feelings recurred, and I was miserable. I knew how disappointed my father would be at this sudden change, and I wished to avoid him until I had recovered myself so far as to be enabled to conceal those feelings that overpowered me. I knew that they would remain that day at the inn, and as I had ever inured myself to rain, moisture, and cold, I resolved to go alone to the summit of Montanvert. I'm American. Please don't expect me to get these names right. We're nothing if not ignorant. I remember the effect that the view of the tremendous and ever-moving glacier had produced upon my mind when I first saw it. It had, them fill, it had then filled me with a sublime ecstasy that gave wings to the soul and allowed it to soar from the obscure world to light and joy. The sight of the awful and majestic in nature had indeed always the effect of solemnizing my mind and causing me to forget the passing cares of life. I determined to go alone, for I was well acquainted with the path, and the presence of another would destroy the solitary grandeur of the scene. The ascent is precipitous, but the path is cut into continual and short windings, which enable you to surmount the perpendicularity of the mountain. It is a scene terrifically desolate. In a thousand spots, the traces of the winter avalanche may be perceived, where trees lie broken and strewn on the ground, some entirely destroyed, others bent, leaning upon the jutting rocks of the mountain, or transversely upon the other trees. The path, as you ascend higher, is intersected by ravines of snow, down which stones continually roll from above. One of them is particularly dangerous, as the slightest sound, such as even speaking in a loud voice, produces a, produces a concussion of air sufficient to draw destruction upon the head of the speaker. How much you want to bet he was wishing that would happen? The pines are not tall or luxuriant, but they are somber, and add an air of severity to the scene. I looked on the valley beneath, Vast mists were rising from the rivers which ran through it and curling in thick wreaths around the opposite mountains, whose summits were hid in the uniform clouds, while rain poured from the dark sky and added to the melancholy impression I received from the objects around me. Alas! Why does man boast of sensibility superior to those apparent in the brute? It only renders them more necessary beings. If our impulses were confined to hunger, thirst, and desire, we might be nearly free. But now we were moved by every wind that blows and a chance word or scene that the, that word may convey to us. We rest, a dream has power to poison sleep. We rise, one wandering thought pollutes the day. 
We feel, conceive, or reason, laugh, or weep, embrace fond woe, or cast our cares away. It is the same, for be it joy or sorrow, the path of its departure still is free. Man's yesterday may ne'er be like this morrow, not may endure but mutability. It was nearly noon when I arrived at the top of the ascent, for sometimes I sat upon the rock that overlooks the sea of ice. A mist covered both that and the surrounding mountains. Presently a breeze dissipated the cloud, and I descended upon the glacier. The surface is very uneven, rising like the waves of a troubled sea, descending low and interspersed by rifts that sink deep. The field of ice is almost a league in width, but I spent nearly two hours in crossing it. The opposite mountain is a bare perpendicular rock. From the side where I now stood, Mount Avert was exactly opposite, at the distance of a league, and above it rose Mont Blanc, in awful majesty. I remained in a recess of the rock, gazing on this wonderful and stupendous scene. The sea, or rather the vast river of ice, wound among its dependent mountains, whose aerial summits hung over its recesses. Their icy and glittering peaks shone in the sunlight over the clouds. My heart, which was before sorrowful, now swelled with something like joy. I exclaimed, Wandering spirits, if indeed ye wander and do not rest in your narrow beds, allow me this faint happiness, or take me as your companion away from the joys of life. As I said this, I suddenly beheld the figure of a man at some distance advancing towards me with superhuman speed he bounded over the crevices in the ice among which i walked with caution his stature also as he approached seemed to exceed that of man i was troubled a mist came over my eyes and i felt a faintness seize me but i was quickly restored by the cold gale of the mountains i perceived as the shape came nearer sight tremendous and abhorred, that it was that wretch whom I had created. I trembled with rage and horror, resolving to wait his approach, and then close with him in mortal combat. He approached, his countenance bespoke bitter and anguish. Combined with disdain and malignity, while its unearthly ugliness rendered it almost too horrible for human eyes. But I scarcely observed this. Anger and hatred had at first deprived me of utterance, and I recovered only to overwhelm him with words oppressive and furious detestation and contempt. Devil! I exclaimed. Do you dare approach me? And do not you fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wreaked on your miserable head? Be gone, vile insect, or rather stay that I may trample you to dust. Oh, and that I could, with the extinction of your miserable existence, restore those victims whom you have so diabolically murdered. I expected this reception, said the demon. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated? who am miserable beyond all living things. Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, 
thy creature to whom thou art bound by toys ties only dissolute I can speak by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us you propose to kill me how dare you sport thus with life do your duty towards me and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind if you will comply with my conditions I will leave them and you at peace but if you refuse I will gut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends abhorred monster fiend that thou art the tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes wretched devil you approach me with your creation come on then may I, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed well that's a flowery way to go you know I made you I can uh, I give you life I can take it back just as quickly isn't that what a lot of not so great mothers uh state when their kids piss them off my rage was without bounds I sprang on him impelled by all the feelings which can arm one being against the existence of another he easily eluded me and said be calm I entreat you to hear me before you give vent to your hatred on my devoted head have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery? Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me, and I will defend it. Remember, thou hast made me more powerful than thyself. My height is superior to thine, my joints more supple. But I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature, and I will be even mild and docile in to my nature. And I will be even mild and docile to my natural lord and king, if thou wilt also perform thy part, of which thou owest me. O Frankenstein, be not equitable to every other, and trample upon me alone, to whom thy justice, and even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou strivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss, from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. I mean, fair. Why do most people go to crime? Because life sucks. Be gone, I will not hear you. There can be no community between you and me. We are enemies. Be gone or let us try our strength in a fight in which one must fall. How can I move thee? Will no entreaties cause thee to turn a favorable eye upon thy creature, who implores thy goodness and compassion? Believe me, Frankenstein, I was benevolent. My soul glowed with love and humanity. But am I not alone, miserably alone? You, my creator, abhor me. 
What hope can I gather from your fellow creatures who owe me nothing? They spurn and hate me. The desert mountains and dreary glaciers are my refuge. I have wandered here many days. The caves of ice, which I only do not fear, are a dwelling to me, and the only one which man does not grudge. These bleak skies I hail, for they are kinder to me than your fellow beings. If the multitude of mankind knew of my existence, they would do as you do and arm themselves for my destruction. Shall I not then hate them who abhor me? I will keep no terms with my enemies. I am miserable, and they shall share my wretchedness. Yet it is in your power to recompense me and deliver them from an evil which it only remains for you to make so great that not only you and your family but thousands of others shall be swallowed up in the whirlwinds of its rage. Let your compassion be moved and do not disdain me. Listen to my tale. When you have heard that, abandon or commiserate me as you shall judge that I deserve. But hear me. The guilty are allowed by human laws bloody as they may be, to speak in their own defense before they are condemned. Listen to me, Frankenstein. You accuse me of murder, and yet you would, with a satisfied conscience, destroy your own creature. Oh, praise the eternal justice of man! Yet I ask you not to spare me. Listen to me, and then, if you can, and if you will, destroy the work of your hands. Oh yeah, if y'all are going off the trope of Frankenstein going, uh, Ah, fire! No, he's not incapable of eloquent speech, as you have just witnessed. Why do you call to my remembrance circumstances of which I shudder to reflect? That I have been the miserable origin and author? Cursed be the day! A poor devil in which you first saw light. Cursed, although I curse myself, be the hands that formed you. You have made me wretched beyond expression. You have left me no power to consider whether I am just to you or not. Be gone. Relieve me from the sight of your detested form. Thus I relieve thee, my creator, he said and placed his hated hands before my eyes, which I flung from me with violence. Thus I take from thee a sight which you abhor. Still thou canst listen to me, and grant me thy compassion. By the virtues that I once possessed, I demand this from you. Hear my tale. It is long and strange, and the temperature of this place is not fitting to your fine sensations. Come to the hut upon the mountain. The sun is yet high in the heavens. Before it descends to hide itself beyond yon snowy precipices and illuminate another world, you will have heard my story and can decide. On you it rests whether I quit forever the neighborhood of man and lead a harmless life or become the scourge of your fellow creatures and the author of your own speedy ruin. As he said this, he led the way across the ice. I followed. My heart was full and I did not answer him. But as I proceeded, I weighed the various arguments that he had used and determined at least to listen to his tale. 
I was partly urged by curiosity, and compassion confirmed my resolution. I had hitherto supposed him to be the murderer of my brother, and I eagerly sought a confirmation or denial of this opinion. For the first time, also, I felt what the duties of a creator towards his creature were, and that I ought to render him happy before I complained of his wickedness. These motives urged me to comply with his demand. We crossed the ice, therefore, and ascended the opposite rock. The air was cold, and the rain began to ascend. Descend. We entered the hut. The fiend with an air of exultation, I with a heavy heart and depressed spirits. But I consented to listen, and seated myself by the fire which my odious companion had lighted. He thus began his tale. Chapter 10 It is with considerable difficulty that I remember the original area of my being. All the events of that period appear confused and indistinct. A strange multiplicity of sensation seized me, and I saw, felt, heard, and smelt at the same time. And it was indeed a long time before I learned to distinguish between the operations of my various senses. By degrees, I remember a stronger light pressed upon my nerves, so that I was obliged to shut my eyes. Darkness then came over me and troubled me, but hardly had I felt this when, by opening my eyes as I now suppose, the light poured in upon me again. I walked, and I believe descended, but I presently found a great alteration in my senses. Before, dark and opaque bodies had surrounded me, impervious to my touch or sight. But now I found that I could wander on at liberty, with no obstacles which I could not either surmount or avoid. The light became more and more oppressive to me, and, the heat wearying me as I walked, I sought a place where I could receive shade. This was the forest near Ingolstadt, and here I lay by the side of a brook resting from my fatigue until I felt tormented by hunger and thirst. This roused me from my nearly dormant state, and I ate some berries which I found hanging on the trees or lying on the ground. I slacked my thirst at the brook, and then, lying down, was overcome by sleep. It was dark when I awoke. I felt cold also, and half frightened as it were instinctively, finding myself so desolate. Before I had quitted your apartment, on a sensation of cold, I had covered myself with some clothes, but these were insufficient to secure me from the dews of night. I was a poor, helpless, miserable wretch. I knew and could distinguish nothing, but feeling pain invade me on all sides, I sat down and wept. Soon a gentle light stole over the heavens and gave me a sensation of pleasure. I started up and beheld a radiant form rise from among the trees. I gazed with a kind of wonder. It moved slowly, but it enlightened my path, and I again went out in search of berries. I was still cold when under one of the trees I found a huge oak, with which I covered myself and sat down upon the ground. I'm a little dyslexic. He found a huge cloak which makes more sense than covering himself with an oak tree. 
No distinct ideas occupied my mind. All was confused. I felt light and hunger and thirst and darkness. Innumerable sounds rung in my ears and on all sides various scents saluted me. The only object that I could distinguish was the bright moon and I fixed my eyes on that with pleasure. Several changes of day and night passed, and the orb of night had greatly lessened when I began to distinguish my senses from each other. I gradually saw plainly the clear stream that supplied me with drink, and the trees that shaded me with their foliage. I was delighted when I first discovered that a pleasant sound, which often saluted my ears, proceeded from the throats of the little winged animals who had often intercepted the light from my eyes. I began also to observe, with greater accuracy, the forms that surrounded me, and to perceive the boundaries of the radiant roof of light which canopied me. Sometimes I tried to imitate the pleasant songs of the birds, but was unable. Sometimes I wished to express my sensations in my own mode, but the uncouth and inarticulate sounds which broke from me frightened me into silence again. The moon had disappeared from the night, and again, with a lessened form, showed itself while I still remained in the forest. My sensations had, by this time, become distinct, and my mind received every day additional ideas. My eyes became accustomed to the light, and to perceive objects in their right forms. I distinguished the insect from the herb, and, by degrees, one herb from another. I found that the sparrow uttered none but harsh notes, whilst those of the blackbird and thrush were sweet and enticing. One day, when I was oppressed uh, by cold, I found a fire which had been left by some wandering beggars, and was overcome with delight at the warmth I experienced from it. In my joy, I thrust my hand into the live embers, but quickly drew it out again with a cry of pain. How strange, I thought that the same cause should produce such opposite effects. I examined the materials of the fire, and to my joy found it to be composed of wood. I quickly collected some branches, but they were wet and would not burn. I was pained at this, and sat still watching the operation of the fire. The wet wood which I had placed near the heat dried, and itself became inflamed. I reflected on this. And by touching the various branches, I discovered the cause, and busied myself in collecting a great quantity of wood that I might dry it and have a plentiful supply of fire. When night came on and brought sleep with it, I was in the greatest fear lest my fire should be extinguished. Oh, hey, he's not afraid of fire. Go figure! I covered it carefully with dry wood and leaves and placed wet branches upon it, and then, spreading my cloak, I lay on the ground and sunk into sleep. It was morning when I awoke, and my first care was to visit the fire. I uncovered it, and a gentle breeze quickly fanned it into a flame. I observed this also, and contrived a fan of brush branches, which roused the embers when they were nearly extinguished. Frankenstein's monster is a lot more intelligent than a lot of people I know. When night came again, 
I found with pleasure that the fire gave light as well as heat, and that the discovery of this element was useful to me in my food, for I found some of the offals that the travelers had left had been roasted, and tasted much more savory than the berries I gathered from the trees. I tried, therefore, to dress my food in the same manner, placing it on the live embers. I found that berries were spoiled by this operation, and the nuts and roots much improved. Food, however, became scarce, and I often spent the whole day searching in vain for a few acorns to assuage the pangs of hunger. When I found this, I resolved to quit the place that I had hitherto inhabited, to seek for one where the few wants I experienced would be more easily satisfied. In this emigration I exceedingly lamented the loss of the fire which I had obtained through accident, and knew not how to reproduce it. I gave several hours to the serious consideration of this difficulty, but I was obliged to relinquish all attempt to supply it, and, wrapping myself up in my cloak, I struck across the wood towards the setting sun. I passed three days in these rambles, and at length discovered the open country. A great fall of snow had taken place the night before, and the fields were of one uniform white. The appearance was disconsolate, and I found my feet chilled by the cold, damp substance that covered the ground. It was about seven in the morning, and I longed to obtain food and shelter. At length, I perceived a small hut on a rising ground, which had doubtless been built for the convenience of some shepherd. This was a new sight to me, and I examined the structure with great curiosity. Finding the door open, I entered. An old man sat in it, near a fire, over which he was preparing his breakfast. He turned on, hearing the noise, and perceived me, shrieked loudly, and quitted the hut, ran across the fields with a speed of which his debilitated form hardly appeared capable. His appearance, different from any I had seen before, and his flight somewhat surprised me, but I was enchanted by the appearance of the hut. Here the snow and rain could not penetrate, the ground was dry, and it presented to me then as exquisite and divine a retreat as the pandemonium appeared to the demons of hell after their sufferings in the lake of fire. I greedily devoured the remnants of the shepherd's breakfast, which consisted of bread, cheese, milk, and wine, the latter, however, I did not like. Then, overcame by fatigue, I lay down among some straw and fell asleep. It was noon when I awoke, and allured by the warmth of the sun, which shone brightly on the white ground, I determined to recommence my travels, and, depositing the remains of the peasant's breakfast in a wallet I had found, I proceeded across the fields for several hours, until at sunset I arrived at a village. I'm going to assume that a wallet has a different meaning back then because while men's pockets nowadays may be big enough to put an entire meal wallets not so much how miraculous did this appear the huts the neater cottages and the stately houses engaged my admiration by turns the vegetables in the gardens, the milk and cheese that I saw placed at the windows of some of the cottages, allured my appetite. One of the best of these I entered, but I had hardly placed my foot within the door 
before the children shrieked and one of the women fainted. The whole village was roused. Some fled, some attacked me, until grievously bruised by stones and many other kinds of missile weapons, I escaped to the open country. I escaped to the open country and fearfully took refuge in a low hovel, quite bare and making a wretched appearance after the palaces I had beheld in the village. This hovel, however, joined a cottage of a neat and pleasant appearance, but after my late, dearly broad experience, I dared not enter it. My place of refuge was constructed of wood, but so low that I could with difficulty sit upright in it. No wood, however, was placed on the earth which formed the floor, but it was dry, and although the wind entered it by innumerable chinks, I found it an agreeable asylum from the snow and rain. Here then I retreated and lay down, happy to have found a shelter, however miserable, from the inclemency of the season, and still more from the barbarity of man. As soon as morning dawned, I crept from my kennel, that I might view the adjacent cottage and discover if I could remain in the habitation I had found. It was situated against the back of the cottage and surrounded on the sides which were exposed by a pig style wow there's no L in that which were exposed by a pig sty and a clear pool of water. One part was open and by that I had crept in but now I covered every crevice by which I might be perceived with stones and wood, yet in such a manner that I might move them on occasion to pass south. All the light I enjoyed came through the sty, and that was sufficient for me. Having thus arranged my dwelling, and carpeted it with clean straw, I retired, for I saw the figure of a man at a distance, and I remembered too well my treatment the night before, to trust myself in his power. I had first, however, provided for my sustenance for that day, by a loaf of coarse bread which I purloined and a cup with which I could drink, more conveniently than from my hand, of the pure water which flowed by my retreat. The floor was a little raised, so that it was kept perfectly dry, and by its vicinity to the chimney of the cottage it was tolerably warm. Being thus provided, I resolved to reside in this hovel until something should occur which might alter my determination. It was indeed a paradise compared to the bleak forest, my former residence, the rain-dropping branches and dank earth. I ate my breakfast with pleasure and was about to remove a plank to procure myself a little water when I heard a step and, looking through the small clink, I beheld a young creature with a pail on her head passing before my hovel. The girl was young and of gentle demeanor, unlike what I have since found cottagers and farmhouse servants to be. Yet she was meanly dressed, a coarse blue petticoat and a linen jacket being her only garb. Her fair hair was plaited but not adorned. She looked patient yet sad. I lost sight of her and in about a quarter of an hour she returned, bearing the pail, which was now partly filled with milk. As she walked along, seemingly, incom seemingly incommoded by the burden, a young man met her, whose countenance expressed a deeper despondence. Uttering a few sounds with an air of melancholy, he took the pail from her, 
and bore it to the cottage himself. She followed, and they disappeared. Presently I saw the young man again, with some tools in his hand. Crossed the field behind the cottage, and the girl was also busy, sometimes in the house and sometimes in the yard. On examining my dwelling, I found that one of the windows of the cottage had formerly occupied a part of it, but the panes had been filled up with wood. In one of these was a small and almost imperceptible chink, through which the eye could just penetrate. Through this crevice a small room was visible, whitewashed and clean, but very bare of furniture. In one corner, near a small fire, sat an old man, leaning his head on his hands in a disconsolate attitude. The young girl was occupied in arranging the cottage, but presently she took something out of a drawer which employed her hands, and she sat down beside the old man, who, taking up an instrument, began to play and to produce sounds sweeter than the voice of the thrush or the nightingale. It was a lovely sight, even to me, poor wretch, who had never beheld aught beautiful before. The silver hair and benevolent countenance of the aged cottager won my reverence, while the gentle manners of the girl enticed my love. He played a sweet, mournful air, which I perceived drew tears from the eyes of his amiable companion, of which the old man took no notice, until she sobbed audibly. Then he pronounced a few sounds, and the fair creature, leaving her work, knelt at his feet. He raised to her, and she smiled with such kindness and affection that I felt sensations of a peculiar and overpowering nature. They were a mixture of pain and pleasure, which as I had never before experienced. Either from hunger or cold warmth their food, and I withdrew from the window, unable to bear these emotions. Soon after this, the young man returned, bearing on his shoulders a load of wood. The girl met him at the door, helped him to relieve him of his burden, and, taking some of the fuel into the cottage, placed it on the fire. Then she and the youth went apart into a nook of the cottage, and he showed her a large loaf and a piece of cheese. She seemed pleased, and went into the garden for some roots and plants, which she placed in water, and then upon the fire. She afterwards continued her work, whilst the young man went into the garden and appeared busily employed in digging and pulling up roots. After he had been employed thus about an hour, the young woman joined him, and they entered the cottage together. The old man had, in the meantime, been pensive, but on the appearance of his companions, he assumed a more cheerf cheerful air, and they sat down to eat. The meal was quickly dispatched. The young woman was again occupied in arranging the cottage. The old man walked before the cottage in the sun for a few minutes, leaning on the arm of the youth. Nothing could exceed in beauty the contrast between these two excellent creatures. One was old with silver hairs and a countenance beaming with benevolence and love. The younger was slight and graceful in his figure, and his features were molded with the finest symmetry, yet his eyes and attitude expressed the utmost sadness and despondency. The old man returned to the cottage, and the youth, with tools different from those he had used in the morning, directed his steps across the fields. Night quickly shut in, but to my extreme wonder, I found that the cottagers had a means of prolonging light by the use of tapers, and was delighted to find that the setting of the sun did not put an end to the pleasure I experienced in watching my human neighbors.
Ah, look, he had his very own soap opera. In the evening, the young girl and her companion were employed in various occupations which I did not understand, and the old man again took up the instrument, which produced the divine sounds that had enchanted me in the morning. So soon as he had finished, the youth began, not to play, but to utter sounds that were monotonous, and neither resembling the harmony of the old man's instrument, or the songs of the birds. I found since that he read aloud, but at that time I knew nothing of the science of the words or letters. Hopefully I'm not monotonous. And that all five of you enjoy me. Maybe. Reading aloud. The family after having been thus occupied for a short time, extinguished their lights and retired, as I conjectured to rest. And that wraps up today's reading. Hopefully you enjoyed the chapters 9 and 10, and we'll begin back up with 11 and 12 next time. Uh, again, if you have anything you would like to say or meet other people who are uh, listening to this if you want to uh, give me constructive criticism or cast your vote for the next book I read uh, or tell me that you like what I'm doing whatever uh, I you can review me on Apple podcasts or wherever you're listening to this uh, or you can go to my Facebook page Tangents on Crack Spines Book Club, uh, where I highly encourage y'all to discuss the chapters we uh, read this week. So again, thank you and have a great day.